What is the Bible? Okay, seriously, I did. I just asked you that question. What is the Bible? You know, we read the Bible. We study the Bible. Sometimes we even say we love the Bible. But I wonder if you've ever just kind of taken a step back and asked yourself, what is the Bible? Take a step back from all the details. You know, you spend your your time in the morning, your quiet time or your personal time, whatever you call it. You read the Bible. You study the Bible. You listen to sermons about the Bible. We dig into the Bible. We grab that, all the details of the Bible. We flesh out a passage. But take a step back from all of that. Ask yourself the question, what is the Bible? Now, I want to ask that question. I'd like you to think about that question with me. Think about what is the formal character of the Bible? What is it, what is it in its very nature? That's the question for today. This episode, I think probably the next episode, what is the Bible? Is it a religious book? Is it a history book? Is it, is a, is it a self-help book, chicken soup for your soul? Is it a love letter? Something that Jesus wrote you because he loves you and wants you to live your best life now? Or is it just a book of Jewish myths and maxims? My name's Greg Kudrowski. This is my podcast. I'm calling it Theology 101 because I think the Bible, it's not that hard to understand. This is episode number 24, and we're going to ask ourselves this question. What is the Bible? This will be part one. We're going to talk about what the Bible calls testaments. Now look, this podcast is just basically an audio blog of my personal Bible study. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a teacher. I'm just a guy, maybe a bit of a Bible junkie, definitely a wannabe street preacher. But hey, if you want to hear more about the Bible or if you just want to hear Bible, stick around. If you want to know more about me, check out my pedigree where you can Google me. Although I am working on reducing my unencrypted digital footprint on the net, or you can just visit my website, theology101.net. So I I ran across this question in a book, and the book is by Meredith Klein. He's He's a doctor, he's a scholar. The book is called The Structure of Biblical Authority. And I saw a reference to this book in another book I was reading. I wanted the whole context, so I, I bought the book, and I'm reading the book. Okay, so that's that. whatever. Well, this question, what is the Bible? It appeared in the second paragraph of the whole book. Okay, so we're talking on page one. So let's just be upfront with this. Klein, the author of the book, he's a scholar. Okay, so um, got that out of the, out, out, of the, out of the way, right? Okay, so that, but... Within that context, you see, that's why the question kind of struck me like it did. Now think about this. Dr. Meredith Klein, he is a professor of Old Testament theology, or just professor of Old Testament, at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. The guy has at least three earned degrees, a BD, a THM, and a PhD. So he's written extensively. He's read extensively. His writings are typical of those by scholars. It's well-researched, well-noted. But yet, after all that, here he is writing this book. He comes full circle back to ask himself, after looking at all the details of his life, his degrees, his research, his teaching, after all of that, he comes full circle back to ask this question on page one of his book, what is the Bible? You know, how do we define and describe the formal character of Scripture? Like Klein, you could spend your whole life studying out the details of, of doctrine and history, of archaeology, or pictures and types of, of application, everything that goes into Scripture. You could spend years investing time and effort into pulling this stuff out. And then like Klein, you could just kind of one day take a step back and ask yourself, now wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm looking at this book, the Bible. What is it? What is it? Okay, now I can hear the, I can hear the voice of the Bible-believing believer. He's out there, he's out there, and he says, well, brother, it's the Word of God, right? It's the Word of God. That's what the Bible is. It's the Word of God. I know it is, okay? I'm not saying anything different. But as the Word of God, Scripture, what is it? You see, here's, here's what I want to do. I, I want to compile a study on Scripture, that's that's kind of what I've been working on. Um, you know, I got a job and I got you know family, and this is kind of like a hobby thing. This is kind of a like little side gig I got going on, um, and that's kind of why I'm podcasting it because I need some structure to kind of pull my studies together. I've been working on this study for a few years. I got a lot more to go, but what I have right now is a ton of notes. 
And then they're scattered all over the place. I got them on an index cards. I got them on sheets of paper. They're in the margins of several different Bibles in a couple of different languages. And they're even in margins of books, books I got all over the place, okay? So I, I want to organize my study. I need to organize my notes. And, and all of these notes and this study, all this stuff that I've been thinking about for the last year. So what kind of study is it? You say, well, Greg, what are you working on? Well, look. Do you have a study Bible? Have you ever had a study Bible? Schofield Bible, Thompson Chain Reference, I think one of the, uh, one that comes to mind, uh, MacArthur Study Bible. Have you ever had a study Bible? Well, you know how they're laid out, right? So each book of the Bible, it has a brief introduction at the beginning. It gives you some facts about the content of the book that you're going to be studying, those that facts or whatever it's meant to help to orient you, kind of prepare you to read the book in its proper context. Sometimes they throw in some extra information like, hey, who wrote it? What's the authorship? What are some theories of authorship? Dates of writing? An outline to show you the structure? You know, kind of fun stuff, right? Well, I want an introductory study like that. But I want an inter introductory study like that for the whole Bible. You see, I want an introductory study of the Bible and its structure as a unified whole, because ju just like these study Bibles, now think about this, just like these study Bibles, they provide an introductory study of each book as a unified whole. I want that for the whole Bible. And why not? You see, if the Bible is truly inspired, okay, our Bible-believing brother who said, it's the Word of God, yes, it is. Okay, the Bible originated by God. It is inspired by God. Well, if, if it is truly inspired, and it is, well, then the Bible in its entirety is the product of one mind. It is the product of God's mind. It is not, therefore, just a random jumble of ancient books just cobbled together later in history by some Jewish scribes and Catholic theologians like these Darwinian textual critics they want us to believe. No, 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 no. The Bible is one book. It is, it's cohesive. The Bible is consistent. The Bible is unified in theme and structure and purpose. It's the Bible. It is one book made up of 66 books that fit together perfectly by divine design. Each passage fits into its chapter. Each chapter fits into its book. Each book fits into the context of the whole of Scripture. And the whole of Scripture, look, in the whole of Scripture, God is doing something. He is taking us from page 1 in Genesis 1, and he's taking us to the end in Revelation, and God is doing something. What is he doing? What is Scripture, this whole book that we're looking at, this, this whole content of, of God-inspired words? What is it? What is it? And I think we need to start here. We need to start with this question because of where I want to go with the study. And it's my study. It's not yours. It's mine. So this is my podcast, okay? So I get to go where I want. And here's where I want to go with my study. I want to build a truly biblical, biblical theology. You said biblical, biblical. Yes, I did. Because, look, you know, there's different theologies out there. Systematic theology, dogmatic theology, historical theology, Pauline theology, Johannine theology, and biblical theology. Well, biblical theology is usually based on the progressive revelation of God, and what these scholars try to do with the biblical theology is they start it, you know, at the, at the first chunk of revelation, you know, let's just say Job, um, you know, they, they say, okay, what was the theology that was in place at the book of Job when, when people had the book of Job, and what was going on there? Then you have the Pentateuch and Moses and the Revelation. Well, what, what did they learn, and, and how did the progressive revelation go? And it's kind of chronological, it's kind of progressive, and, and usually the scholars, they just, they just make a mess out of it because they don't stick to the Bible. Well, I want a biblical theology that's biblical. I don't want just a biblical theology. There's a ton of biblical theologies out there, okay? I want a biblical theology that's based on the Bible, like Theology 101. I, I like simple. For me, simple is better, okay? Now, here's, here's a quote by a guy named Dr. Walter Kaiser. He's, he's got some good books out there, okay? And he co-authored a book with a guy named Moises Silva. And they, too, wrote this book on hermeneutics. And they, Kaiser, in a chapter that he wrote on biblical theology, I think he describes very well what I have in mind when I say I want a biblical, biblical theology. Okay, I want a biblical theology that's based on the Bible. Here's what he says. Kaiser, biblical theology is the quest for the big picture or the theological wholeness 
and the overview that brings out the unity, the plan, the cohesiveness, and the purpose of God as that plan moves through the course of history. We see, that's what I want. I want my very own biblical theology. Okay, but a biblical theology is of necessity based on the Bible. I want to I take and start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and I want to do an overview of Scripture according to God's perfect, preserved, progressive revelation. And I want to pay attention to context, biblical context, chronological context, cumulative context, to see how this thing unfolds, a biblical theology. So it needs to be based on the Bible. Okay, now the Bible we hold in our hands, the Bible we read each day in our own language. And so the, the question, this question, what is the Bible? It needs to be addressed first. In this first study of what I hope becomes an introductory study of the Bible and its structure as a unified whole. Okay, an introductory study of the Bible. What is the Bible? Now, we're going to answer this question in three parts. This is introduction stuff, okay? We're not digging into the deep weeds of, of what's going to be going on in the study and how all this stuff is going to fit together, but you're going to start to get an idea of where we're going to go with this thing, okay? This is first part. This is part one, episode uh, 24. We're going to be looking at what is the Bible, part one, okay? And I want to say this. Here's our topic of study in this lesson for episode 24 today. For the next episode 25, we'll finish it up, I think. And this is it. Here's the topic of study. The Bible is a covenant corpus. Okay, so let's talk about that. Corpus. What is a corpus? Okay, we talk about the, the Pauline corpus. Okay, what is a Pauline corpus? It's the collection of Paul's writings. A corpus is a large collection of writings of, of a specific kind or on a specific subject. Okay, so it can be a specific kind, it can be a specific genre, a specific kind of, you know, legal documents, or I don't know, whatever, it can be a specific kind, a corpus, or it can be on a specific subject, okay, like a subject in literature or history or whatever. And so the Bible is a collection of writings. It is a corpus. It is a collection of writings of a specific kind. What kind? Covenantal. Covenants. And of a, on a specific subject. It is a collection of writings on a specific subject. What subject? Covenants. Specifically covenants between God and his moral creatures. Okay? So the Bible is a covenant corpus. It is a body. It is a collection of covenants. This is the nature of the Bible. Covenant. This is the formal character of the Bible. Covenant. Now, the covenant structure of the Bible is at once, let's say it's foundational and it's forgotten. Okay, it's foundational in the sense that it's it's essential, it's necessary. It's at the very base of, of everything that builds up on top of it. It's the foundation. And it is at the same time, it's it's forgotten. Forgotten. Okay, now listen, C.I. Schofield, if you got his old Schofield Bible, don't get the new one, get the old one. Um, his old reference Bible stated very clearly what he believed about the covenantal nature of the Bible, of Scripture. And it says this in the context of the Edenic Covenant. I think it's on pages 5 and 6. It's right there in the beginning um, where he's, where he's, he's referencing uh, the covenant God made with Adam and, and Eve in, in the Garden of Eden, Genesis like 128 or 215 to 17, around there. And he says... He references the eight great covenants of Scripture. And then he says, about which all Scripture crystallizes. So C.I. Schofield, in his old Schofield Bible, he says, look, all Scripture, the whole Bible crystallizes, that the structure forms around the eight great covenants of Scripture. The whole content of Scripture, it crystallizes around the covenants. The covenants then are the very structure around which all Scripture hangs, around which all Scripture organizes itself, like crystals. Covenants are as essential to the body of Scripture as a skeleton is to the human body. Foundational. Hal Harless, he, he wrote a book on, on the relationship between the, uh, the, the covenants and the, and the dispensations. Very informative. Hal Harless, he states the importance of the covenants in this way. He says, The concept of covenant is critical to the understanding of the cultural and historical context of the Scriptures. And so he says it's critical. This concept of covenant is critical to our understanding of context. Now, now you know as well as I do the, the first three rules of hermeneutics. What are they? 
context, context, context. And so according to Harless, he is so convinced of the necessity and, and, and the, the fundamental nature of covenants. He says this concept of covenant is, is critical to our understanding of the context of Scripture. We are not going to understand fully the context of the Scriptures we're reading and studying until we take into account the covenants. And yet something so foundational, the very structure, the very nature, the very formal character of the Bible— is largely forgotten in today's modern church. You know, we've thrown doctrine out the window. We don't want true worship of a holy God. We prefer entertainment. And rather than having doctrinally based expository preaching, what do we want? We want TED Talks. TED Talks to make me feel good. You know, what is the Bible? In this study, we're going to answer that question. Okay, what is the Bible? And we're going to do it by drawing attention to two specific aspects of Scripture. In this episode, we're going to talk about the two Testaments. In the next episode, Lord willing, we're going to talk about the eight major covenants. So two Testaments. The Bible itself is a covenant corpus. It is a body. It is a collection of covenants. And because of that, it well, not because of that, but because... It consists of two testaments, the old and the new. We can see right away that the Bible in its very basic, most basic structure, its two-part division, is a covenantal book. It's made up of two testaments. So what is a testament? If we're going to say we got Old Testament, New Testament, what is a testament? Well, any covenant that involves the death of someone could properly be called a testament. Every testament is a covenant, but not every covenant is a testament, right? So a testament is simply a covenant that requires the death of the testator to make it of legal force. A covenant is just that. It is a legal document, okay? It's usually a, a statement of an I will do this, and then it's, it's, it's given with an oath, and it's, it's legally binding upon the parties involved. A testament goes into legal force, with the death of the testator, with the death of the, the covenant maker. Okay, that's Hebrews 9, 16, and 17. Now, we'll be spending a lot of time in Hebrews 9 here in just a bit. But Hebrews 9, 16, and 17 says, For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is, is of force, that's legal force, after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength, legal strength, at all, while the testator liveth. So, Every testament is a covenant. It's a covenant that requires the death of a testator. But, and I said this before, every covenant is not a testament. Now, this distinction becomes critically important, especially when we apply the term testament to the Mosaic covenant or the word testament to the new covenant. That's where the confusion comes in. The Old Testament does not only refer to the Mosaic Covenant. And the New Testament is not the same as the New Covenant. So the term and concept of testament, as defined in the Bible by its first mention during the Lord's Supper at the end of the Gospels, and by its full mention in chapter 9 of the book of Hebrews, is where we're going to spend the rest of our time here in this episode. So let's talk about testament in the first mention. Okay, now this first mention, you find it at the end of the Gospels, Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22. Paul mentions it in 1 Corinthians 11:25 when he references uh, the Lord's Supper and the ordinance in the local church. Matthew 26, 28, the first mention of the word testament in your Bible. Jesus says, For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And so the Lord refers to his work of shedding his blood, obviously on the cross, referring to the shedding of blood and his death on the cross, as the New Testament. Note that he did not call it a covenant. He called it a testament. Now, it could be called a covenant, because every testament is a covenant. But it is more accurate and precise to call it in this context a testament. And we're going to see why in just a moment. The Lord referred to this testament in the context of his death, shedding of his blood, 
substitutionary sacrifice on the cross, he said very specifically, for the remission of sins. And so based on the first mention of this word, testament, we see that a testament is a formal legal arrangement of a substitutionary sacrifice for sins. It's a bloody sacrifice, it's death. So with the shedding of his blood on the cross, with his death, Jesus Christ established a new testament. He established a new system of substitutionary sacrifice for the remission of sins, and thereby made the previous testament, the previous system of substitutionary sacrifice for the remission of sins, he made that previous testament old. The New Testament means there's an Old Testament. The Old Testament, therefore, now think about this. It's, I mean, it's, I don't know if you've heard this before. I mean, seriously, um, sometimes the first time we hear of a concept, it kind of just goes right over our heads and we're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We didn't catch it. You know, we got to hit pause and then rewind. Um, but this is not difficult. Okay, it's not. Jesus says, this is my blood of the New Testament. It's shed for the remission of sins. Now look, the New Testament is a legal agreement, a covenant, that, that, it, that establishes a system of substitutionary sacrifice. This is a New Testament shed for the remission of sins, blood shed for the remission of sins. So that means there was an Old Testament. There was an old system of substitutionary sacrifice for the remission of sins. Okay, The Old Testament, therefore, refers to the old system of substitutionary sacrifice for the remission of sins up until the death of Christ. You want me to say that again? The Old Testament is not the Mosaic Law. It's not the Mosaic Covenant. Okay? The Old Testament is much more broad. The Old Testament refers to the entire system the old system of substitutionary sacrifice for the remission of sins up until the death of Christ. The New Testament, then, refers to the new system of substitutionary sacrifice for the remission of sins after the death of Christ. And that leads us to the full-mentioned passage of the Bible regarding testaments, Hebrews 9. Okay? The full mention of Testaments, Hebrews 9. The first thing that we're, we should notice, and you can do this on your own, you read this chapter, you read the one immediately preceding it, the one immediately after it, that means Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. Read those. Read them, mark them in your Bible, look at the terms. Okay, the first thing we should notice is the use of both the word covenant and the word testament in these chapters. Okay, although these terms are similar, they are not the same. And we should not assume they are the same just because they appear in the same context. Okay? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Paul says, Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. So he's in chapter 9 talking about a first and old covenant. But yet in Hebrews 9, 16 and 17, he says, For where a testament is there must also of necessity be the death of the testator, for a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Then in the following chapter, Hebrews 10, referring to the new covenant, he says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their heart and their minds. I will write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. And so there is similarity Okay, any covenant that involved the death of someone could properly be called a testament. And that is exactly why in our Bible, that is why we see the Mosaic Covenant with its elaborate system of bloody sacrifices is at times referred to in Scripture as a testament. The Mosaic Covenant could be called a testament because of the death of of the animal sacrifices. Okay, 2 Corinthians 3.14, Paul calls the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, an Old Testament. He says, But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. And then later in Revelation 11.19, the Apostle John 
speaks of the Ark of the Covenant, okay, that Ark that was built to hold the Old Testament, or the, the Old Covenant with Moses, the, the tables of the law. It says, the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his, in his temple the Ark of his Testament. Not Ark of the Covenant, it's the Ark of his Testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. So the Mosaic Covenant could, could, could be called a testament, and Paul refers to it as a testament. John refers to it as a testament. Okay, So there's similarity between covenants and testaments because a testament was just a covenant that involved the death of somebody. The New Covenant, okay, which is clearly called a covenant in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. We're going to look at that passage a lot, so I'm not going to bother to read it right now. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, full mentioned passage of the, the New Covenant. The New Covenant is at times referred to as the New Testament. Why? Well, it was because it was ratified at the death of Christ. It will not, however, go fully into effect until after those days. After those days of tribulation, after those days of Daniel's 70th week, at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, we see that the shed blood of Jesus Christ initiated the New Testament, and the New Testament is of legal force today, where the New Covenant is not. Okay? Jesus said, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for, the, shed for many for the remission of sins. And that's us. Folks, that, that's us. Okay? Um, the New Testament is in force. Why? Because we got, we're saved under the New Testament. The shedding of Jesus Christ's blood in our place, his substitutionary sacrifice in our place, you know, he took our place of, of, of sin and judgment that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the New Testament, folks. So the New Testament is legal and binding today, whereas the New Covenant is not. And so we also see that the shed blood of Jesus Christ, it ratified the New Covenant. That's where, okay, Hebrews 10.29. Hebrews 10.29, Paul says, Of how much sorer punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of, of grace. So what do we see here? What are we trying to pull out? Well, we see that there are similarities between a testament and a covenant. Okay? There are similarities. The, the, the Mosaic covenant is sometimes called the, a testament. The new covenant some, is, is referred to, at least in part, some of its stipulations, as a New Testament. Okay, because there's similarities. A testament is a covenant that involves the death of somebody. But there's differences. There are distinctions. The usage of the word testament in context, in the Bible, particularly in Hebrews 9, which is our full-mentioned passage, it specifically refers to a system of sacrificial death that was legally and formally arranged by God for the salvation of lost, sinful man. Why, why do we say that? Well, we say that because of what Jesus said in Matthew 26, 28, a testament achieved the remission of sins. That's what he said. This is the, my shed blood for the remission of sins. A testament, therefore, results in life. What we would call, in our context, from our perspective, eternal life or even salvation. And so in Hebrews 9, I want you to observe, and I'm going to run through some verses. You can read them later, mark them later, go through them if you're sitting down and you have somewhere to pull out a Bible and, and, and look at the Bible while I'm going through this. But just observe. Observe the comparison that God makes through his inspirational, his inspired words, the, the, the comparison between the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ and the sacrificial death of animals. Goats, calves, and bulls. Because what you have is this comparison between two sacrificial systems, animals and Jesus Christ. Okay, Hebrews 9.12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So we have a comparison the blood of goats and calves, and the blood of Jesus Christ. You have two sacrificial systems, animals and the Son of God. The blood of goats and calves has now been replaced by the better system 
based on his own blood, on Christ's own blood. That's Hebrews 9.12. The very following verse, Hebrews 9.13 says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh. Now, now, the blood of bulls and goats sanctified, according to this verse. The blood of bulls and goats purified, according to this, this verse. And so that's why Paul says in Hebrews 9.22, coming to the conclusion about this bloody sacrificial system of animals, he says, and almost all things are by the law, referring to that particular law of Moses, they are purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. So all of this is to say that the blood the blood sacrifice of a substitutionary animal, a bull, a goat, a calf, it purged, and it provided for remission of sins. The old substitutionary sacrificial system of animals, the Old Testament, purged and provided for the remission of sins. But now, the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ is a better system than the blood sacrifice of animals. That's the comparison that's being made in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9.14, just after Paul said in Hebrews 9.13 that the blood of bulls and of goats and the, hashes, the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, he says in verse 14, how much more, it's a better system, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge out your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So the Lord's blood sacrifice, it also provides for the remission of sins. You remember Hebrews 9.22? That almost all things by the law are purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Okay, Jesus said, remember Matthew 26.28, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for the remission of sins. His sacrifice is better than the animal sacrifices. Why? Well, obviously, because it sanctifies eternally. It says in Hebrews 10.10, by the which we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And it's here in this context, comparing the old system of animal sacrifices to the new system of Christ's sacrifice it, this, is, this is the place where God introduces that term testament. So he says it's not like the blood of the bulls and goats that, yes, was, was for the remission of sins, but they had to offer him time and time and time again. Now it's once for all in Jesus Christ. He says in Hebrews 9.15, for this cause, he, Jesus Christ, is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament— they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So pay very close attention to what this passage says because it is key. There are two and only two testaments. The New Testament, of which Jesus Christ is mediator, and the First Testament that was made old by the new one. They do not refer to any specific covenant. Okay, of the eight major covenants God made with man, these testaments do not refer to any one specific of those eight covenants. These testaments rather refer to legal systems of substitutionary sacrifice, the shedding of innocent blood and payment of a sin debt. So the New Testament, think about this, the New Testament, is, it's the one of which Christ is or was and is the mediator. Jesus Christ is the one who died to make this testament of legal force to remit sins, okay? Remission of sins. That's a phrase that's used in context of the Old Testament and the New Testament, all right? The New Testament now obviously is tied to, it is part of the New Covenant. We're going to look at that in just a minute, okay? That's true. We need to flesh that out a little bit more, and we'll do that in a bit, um, more specifically in the next episode of our podcast, second half of this lesson. But right now what we need to see is this term, New Testament, what it refers to very specifically. 
is the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ to obtain complete forgiveness of sins and eternal life for guilty sinful man. The New Testament, therefore, must be distinguished from the New Covenant. The New Covenant was made with Israel, Jeremiah 31, 31, and it contained far more than just forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And you say, well, just forgiveness of sins, right? Yeah. I mean, there was a whole lot more to it than that. Okay, the New Testament refers to this legal deal that God made to accept the payment of Christ on the cross for sinful lost man. And it refers to the salvation portion of the New Covenant only. You see, the New Testament in Hebrews 9.15 is the one of which Christ was and is the mediator. He's the one who died to make this testament of legal force. Legal force to do what? To remit sins. It is for the remission of sins. And so the first testament, Hebrews 9.15, if we've got the New Testament that now supersedes the first testament, the first testament is the one that was in place before Christ. And it consisted of animal sacrifices for the remission of sins. It was first and now is old. It is the Old Testament that has been replaced by the New Testament. So remember, the force and strength of a testament is found in the death of the testator. It's legal force, it's legal strength. Hebrews 9, 16, and 17, where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. For for a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is, it is of no strength, no force at all, while the testator liveth. And so in order for a testament to be of legal force, in order for it to be active and applicable, somebody, the testator, has to die. This is what distinguishes a covenant from a testament, a testament from a covenant. Without the death of a testator, the testament has no legal strength whatsoever to do what it's designed to do. And so Christ is the one who died to make the New Testament of legal force, to give it legal strength to save by the remission of sins. That's what he said in Matthew 26, 28. This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Animals, the goats and calves and bulls that are mentioned in Hebrews 9, were the ones who died to make the First Testament, the Old Testament, of force and give it strength to save by the remission of sins. Don't miss that point. It is a parallel. You're looking at an Old Testament and a New Testament. The New Testament is easy to see. You know who the testator is. It is Jesus Christ, because he said it very clearly. This is the blood, my blood of the New Testament. It's shed for the remission of sins. Okay, Whose blood was shed for the remission of sins before Jesus Christ? It's the blood of bulls and goats, the animal sacrifices. Okay, Hebrews 9.22, almost all things are by the law purged with blood. Without shedding of blood is no remission. Okay, so the first testament, which is now the Old Testament, was the sacrificial system of animals. Animals that died to provide remission of sins to lost man. The animals then that were sacrificed, according to Hebrews 9, 16, and 17, the animals were the testators because they died to give strength to the legal arrangement that was in force. God established the arrangement, but if man did not bring the animal, did not kill that animal, did not drain that animal's blood, shed that blood in his place, there was no remission of sin. Okay, The testator had to die to give strength to the legal arrangement in force. So this system of substitutionary animal sacrifices is particularly exemplified in the Mosaic system of Levitical sacrifices. Okay, You have an entire, I mean, Leviticus. Think about Leviticus. You go through Leviticus, this, this this detailed description of animal sacrifices. Okay, so we see animal sacrifices, and I call it particularly exemplified in the Mosaic system of Levitical sacrifices. Hebrews 9, 18 to 20. 
Hebrews 9, 18 to 20 refers to this, okay? It says, whereupon neither the first testament, this is the Old Testament before Christ, neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. So the blood that was shed to ratify and make of force the Old Testament was the blood of calves and goats. They are the testators. Okay, so what we see in the Mosaic system of animal sacrifices is a very particular example of the animal sacrifices under the Old Testament. However, the system itself, this system of substitutionary animal sacrifices, is generally inclusive of the entire system of blood sacrifices of animals established by God in Genesis 2 and 3. You see, this is why when you open your Bible, somebody somebody way back when put a page in there that says Old Testament, right before Genesis 1. Why? Because from Genesis 1 all the way up to the, to the end of the Gospels and the crucifixion of Christ is the Old Testament. What did they do to remit sins? They had a system of blood sacrifices of animals that God himself established in Genesis 2 and 3. And it went all the way up to the death of Jesus Christ. And when Christ died, he is the new testator. His death is better. It established a better testament, a new testament making the first one old. Genesis 2, 15 to 17. Here's part of the legal agreement God made with Adam. He says, And the Lord God took the man, Adam, put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. So God gave him something to do, a stewardship, responsibility, and the Lord commanded the man. So now it's legal. There's a command. There's a law. There is, there's something that God expects of man to do. Man can rebel, disobey, break the law. Okay, God commanded the man. Now it's legal, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Now that's what God said, in the day. Thou shalt surely die. And then when Adam did that, and he ate of the tree with Eve, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, did he die in that day? And I can hear the, I can hear the voice of the, the Bible-believing believer. He says, oh, he died spiritually. He died, and he got separated from God. Yeah, he did. I know. Okay? I know. But he did not die physically. But there was something else, somebody else, there was another creature that on that day, the day of Adam's sin, there was another creature that did die physically. Genesis 3.21 Unto Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. You see, an animal died that day instead of, in the stead of, substitutionary sacrifice, in the stead of Adam and Eve. Salvation, forgiveness of sins, life instead of death under the Old Testament came by faith and a blood sacrifice. Genesis 4.4, Abel, very soon after what happened with Adam and Eve, it says... Genesis 4.4, And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and his offering. So Abel brings the firstling of his flock, an animal sacrifice that he offered to God. In Hebrews 11.4 it says, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. So here we have salvation under the Old Testament. Right there in Genesis 2, 3, and 4, you have sin causes death. But God is willing to accept a substitutionary blood sacrifice, the death of an animal, 
if the sinner will place his faith in that offering as his blood sacrifice and then kill the animal in his place. You see, folks, there's only two testaments. There's two testaments, and they make up the entire Bible. The Old Testament began with Adam in Genesis 2 and 3. The term Old Testament refers to the collective deaths of animal sacrifices. How many were there? I mean, seriously, from Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve until the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, this, the, the collective deaths of animal sacrifices, that's the Old Testament. The goats and the calves, they were the testators that were of strength to redeem by the remission of sins, Hebrews 9.22. And they did that. They were of strength when they died and shed their innocent blood in substitutionary sacrifice for sinful man. Now, obviously, okay, obviously, the animal sacrifices did not clear the guilty. They provided for forgiveness and remission of sins, yes, but Exodus 34, 7. Exodus 34, 7, it says that God, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, yes, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, based on animal sacrifices. And it goes on to say, and that will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children, unto the third and fourth generation. So, yes, animal sacrifices provided for forgiveness. Forgiveness of iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yes, animal sacrifices were a way to, to, to make the, the guilty innocent. It was a substitutionary sacrifice. It was for a remission, a remitting, a, 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 a taking away, or a clearing in a certain way, because it didn't clear the guilty. It did not permanently take away sins. That's why they had to offer the blood of bulls and goats continually. Hebrews 10.4, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Okay? So the Old Testament did purify and sanctify. That's what we see in Hebrews 9.13. It did. It purified, it sanctified, but it was only temporary. It purged with blood. It provided for a remission of sins, Hebrews 9.22. And so the death of the testator in the Old Testament is this entire body of animal sacrifices. Okay, This body of sacrifices as a testator testifies to that which was to come. You remember the story, Abraham and Isaac, when Abraham takes Isaac up to sacrifice him, and God told him, you know, put him on an altar and, and offer him as a holocaust, kill him. Genesis 22, 8, Abraham said to, to Isaac, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. And God did provide himself a lamb, John 1, 29. John the Baptist seeth Jesus coming unto him, and he, and he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. You see, God will provide himself a lamb. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins, or the sin of the world. So the death of these testators, the animal sacrifices that testified to a better sacrifice to come, a more permanent and eternal sacrifice, the deaths of these testators purged, repentant, faithful sinners with blood for the remission of their sins, Hebrews 9.22. That was during the Old Testament. It's just as the blood of Christ purges us today for the remission of sins under the New Testament, okay? Hebrews 10.18. But now in the New Testament, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. So the Old Testament began with the first animal sacrifice, with the first testator that died in order to give legal force and strength to remit the sins of the guilty sinner. That Old Testament began with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, and it continued until Matthew 27 with the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. The New Testament began with the death of Jesus Christ in Matthew 27. Jesus says again in Matthew 26, 28, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And so the New Testament replaced the old when Christ shed his blood and he died on the cross. It says in Hebrews 9, 15 to 17, again, for this cause, he, Jesus Christ, is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death, 
for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament. They which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a, test, a testament is a force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength, no strength at all, while the testator liveth. And then Hebrews 10, 9 and 10. Then saith he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. And he taketh away the first, the Old Testament, that he may, may establish the second, the New Testament, by the which pardon me, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And so Christ died on the cross for a better remission of sins. It's better because the remission of sins in Jesus Christ is eternal redemption, Hebrews 9.22. Hebrews 9.22 speaks of the, the remission of sins under the law through the animal sacrifices. It says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. Without shedding of blood is no remission. So yes, there was remission under the Old Testament, but Christ's is a better remission because it says in Hebrews 10.18, where remission of these is in Christ— there is no more offering for sin. Okay? 9.12, Hebrews 9.12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place. Not once a year like, the, like in the Old Testament. No, once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And then in Hebrews 9.15, we see that for this cause he, Christ, is a mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And so this is why the New Testament can be in effect today, legally in force with strength to save, while the New Covenant is not. It is not yet, not until after those days. That's a distinction that must be made. You see, God did not make the new covenant with you. You did not receive the new covenant. You are a Christian. Most of you listening to me, if not all of you, are probably Gentiles who got saved and became Christian. You're not Jews. But look, today we are saved by the blood of the New Testament of Jesus Christ. But today... The New Testament is not yet in force, or the New Covenant, sorry. So those two things must be distinguished. The, the singular death, that one-time death of the Lamb of God in Matthew 27 constituted a New Testament, a new sacrificial system that replaced the old system of animals, the Old Testament of animal sacrifices. That's the New Testament. Replace the Old Testament. New Testament from Christ's death all the way throughout eternity will cover our sins forever. The Old Testament, which goes far beyond just the Mosaic Covenant, it covers from, from the beginning of Genesis all the way up until Matthew 27 and the death of Christ. And so the New Testament is, is in legal force today. The New Covenant, it's not. In its entirety. The New Covenant, everything that's promised in the stipulations of the New Covenant as a whole is not in force. Yes, the New Covenant, it was ratified on the cross, okay? It was ratified on the cross. There's nothing more that actually needs to be done to put the New Covenant into effect, but it does not go into full effect until after those days, after the days of the tribulation, after Daniel's 70th week, Daniel 9.27, after those days, at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, is when the new covenant goes into effect. Now let's read the passage, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. This is the full-mentioned passage of the new covenant. Okay, obviously there are other passages that we pull in comparing scripture with scripture to build a complete theology of this new covenant, but this is where we start. Jeremiah 31, 31 says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, stop right there. Stop. With whom did God make the new covenant? 
He made the new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. If you are like me, my ancestors came from Russia and Romania. I am a Gentile. God did not make this covenant with me. This covenant is not for me. It is for Israel and Israel only. Now, this will be one of the bigger distinctions we make in our study. Because the covenant theologians, what they want to do is say that there is only one people of God in Old Testament and New Testament. We are now spiritual Israel, and all the promises that God made to Israel are for us. That, folks, is an allegorization of Scripture. It's wrong, and it's heresy. When God speaks, God speaks with language clearly, just like you and I do, normally, literally. And when he said, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, he's talking about Israel and Judah, not the church. And then he says, verse 32, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, It's a Mosaic covenant, although I wasn't husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. And then he gives the stipulations. Here they are. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. You see that last phrase, forgive their iniquity, remember their sin no more. That's the peace that we got. That's the New Testament. But there's so much more that goes on inside the stipulations of this covenant that we did not receive because we don't receive the New Covenant. We receive the salvation that comes from this covenant, which is the New Testament. But when God says, I'm going to put my law in their inward parts, he has not, he has not done that with us. He put his law in our hands, Scripture. He says, I'll write it in their hearts. He didn't. Your heart is still desperately wicked. Then he says, they shall teach no more every man his neighbor. And yet God, Christ himself, established pastors and teachers to teach us the Scripture. And so don't tell me God made the covenant, the new covenant with us. He did not. We receive salvation through the New Testament in Christ's blood. Now, this passage, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, is, is, is quoted over in Hebrews within, in the context of the New Testament. It says in Hebrews 8, verses 8 to 12, For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, Mosaic covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I'll put my laws into their, into their mind and write them on their heart. I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people." They shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities. I will remember no more. And then he repeats it again in Hebrews 10, 16 and 17. Hebrews 10, 16 and 17. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts. And in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. So the only aspect of the new covenant that's in force today is the aspect of salvation. It's the forgiveness of sins, remission of sins, and eternal life through the new birth by the presence of the Spirit of God. This aspect, forgiveness and life, this aspect constitutes the New Testament this new sacrificial system of Christ that replaced the old sacrificial system, the Old Testament of animal sacrifices. So this is why Paul could say that he was a minister and that we today are ministers of the New Testament, but not of the New Covenant. 2 Corinthians 3.6, Paul says, "...who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament." 
not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. You see, the church did not receive the new covenant of Jeremiah 31.31. No, the new covenant is given to Israel and Israel only. Physical descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob and the twelve boys. We did, however, receive the salvation provided by and through the new covenant. Now think about this. The new covenant provided for salvation, forgiveness and remission of sins, eternal redemption, eternal life through the new birth. That salvation is what we got. Paul says in Acts 28, 28, one of those verses that you just kind of read through and go, oh yeah, I got that, and you miss the importance of the definite article. Paul says, be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, and that they will hear. You see, Paul, he's talking to the Jewish leaders in Rome. Be it known unto you, Jews. Be it known therefore unto you, Israel, Israelites, that the salvation, there's only one now, there's only one New Testament, that's it. The salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles. This salvation, the salvation originally provided for Israel under the New Covenant, is now provided in the New Testament to all. It is the legal arrangement established by God to accept the death of the testator, Jesus Christ, as a legal substitute to purge us from all sins and make us acceptable in His sight. That's that last phrase of Jeremiah 31, 34, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. That's what we get. It is, it is the purging with blood, for without shedding of blood is no remission, Hebrews 9, 22. It is the fact that now it is by his own blood that he entered once into the holy place, obtaining that eternal redemption for us, eternal, once and for all, Hebrews 9, 12. He didn't didn't have to suffer many times since the foundation of the world, Hebrews 9.26. Now, in the end of the world, he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see, Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation, Hebrews 9.28. And so Paul says in Ephesians 1, 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he, God, hath made us sinners accepted in the beloved. Because the beloved is our testator. He's our substitutionary sacrifice. He is the one who shed his blood and died in our place so that God could legally accept us instead of legally condemning us to the death that we deserve. And so, I'm done. Okay, I'm done. What is the Bible? We're going to pick this up. Like I said, I'm going to talk, I want to talk about the eight major covenants in the next episode. I, I Don't miss it, seriously. I mean, I, I don't know. My, it's my Bible study, right? So I like it. Um, if you like this stuff on the Testaments, man, come back for more on the eight major covenants. I'm not going to go through the covenants chronologically. I'm not going to start you in Genesis and then walk you through the covenants. We, we got plenty of time to do that kind of thing in our biblical theology. I want to I want to do something a little different with the eight major covenants, okay? So if you got time, um, if you're not bored to death, if you haven't got irritated with my nasally voice, um, man, come back for more. So let, let's let's tie this one up. Let's, let's finish this one up. What is the Bible? The Bible is a covenant corpus. The Bible, it's a body, it's a collection of covenants. That's what Scripture is by its nature and by its formal character. This is seen, first of all, in the fact that the Bible consists of two testaments. Old Testament, New Testament. A testament is a covenant that requires the death of the testator in order to be of legal force. Legal force to save, to remit sins. The Old Testament, from Adam to the cross, involved the death of various testators in the sacrificial system of animals. The animals were the testators. They died to give legal force, legal strength, 
for the forgiveness and remission of sins. The New Testament from the cross involves the death of the testator, Jesus Christ, and his once-for-all sacrificial death at Calvary. And so all of this to say, at its most basic and fundamental level, it's two-part division, it's two-part structure. The Bible is covenant. It is a collection of two testaments, two covenants that involve the deaths of the testators. And so before I finish up, I just want to say one more thing. This is going to be a side note, okay? Side note. Bibles that change testament to covenant destroy the clarity of the doctrine of the Old and New Testaments that we just studied out. And because of that, they cause unnecessary confusion among God's people. Yes, every testament is a covenant, so you can call a testament a covenant. But not every covenant is a testament, and so clarification in context is always best. And I think we've seen that God has some very specific things to tell us and to teach us through the usage of the word testament in context. You see, words have meaning, and if you change the words, you change the meaning. So things different are not the same. You cannot change testament to covenant and think that they teach the same thing. They do not. So choose your Bible wisely. Choose your Bible based on faith and not on man's wisdom. So thanks for spending your time listening to my podcast, okay? I call my podcast Theology 101. Why? Because I don't think the Bible is that difficult to understand. It's, it's really fairly simple. Old Testament, New Testament, and simple is better. Now, you can find the rest of my studies in English out on my website. It's theology101.net. If you want to contact me, there's a contact page out on that same website theology101.net. Send me a message. Hey, let's have pancakes. Now remember what Nicholas von Zinzendorf said. This is one of my favorite quotes of all times. Preach the gospel. Die. Be forgotten. Isn't that great? Preach the gospel. Die. Be forgotten. So this week, live that out, man. Go preach the gospel. Die. Be forgotten. It's simple, folks. It's Theology 101. Learn the Bible. Do what it tells you. And if you want, come back for more. The next episode, more of Theology 101.